Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertpearlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's a couple of news stories? Jeremy, as we predicted on past episodes of Medicine the Truth, the U.S. is seeing high rates of COVID, the flu, and RSV all at the same time. Specific to COVID, however, We can't be sure of the exact magnitude of the problem. Since the CDC no longer collects cases directly, and since testing has become relatively infrequent, we have to rely on indirect evidence to obtain a comprehensive view. One way to do the calculation is by wastewater sampling. This approach measures the level of virus in the water coming from our toilets, and it's the best gauge how many people are becoming infected. And that is at a near historical high. What that tells us is that most likely huge numbers of people are now infected or at least exposed to virus, maybe as many as 2 million new cases a day in the US. The second measurement we use is that of severe disease. This is calculated based on the number of hospitalizations. Once again, that number is much higher than in this most recent summer, but far less than it was at the 2021 peak. That can reflect that the new vaccine, which used a recent variant XBBB.1.5 as its mRNA basis, is effective, and the research indicates that that might be a reduction in severe infections by as much as 60%. However, that data itself could also be misleading. Remember that in the past, every patient hospitalized across the United States was tested for COVID. As such, many cases of COVID were reported in which the hospitalized person had the virus, but that's not what prompted the admission. As such, the lower number of hospitalized patients compared to in the past could be an artifact of simply less testing of people who don't seem to have COVID at the time of their admission. And supporting this hypothesis is the reality that only about 20% of Americans have been boosted. So as such, we really can't be absolutely certain how many people have severe disease. A third measure is the number of deaths from COVID. And here we're seeing about 1,500 patients per week, far less than the over 4,000 we saw in the past, and similar to the number of deaths which result from motor vehicle accidents or opioid overdoses in the nation. In total, in 2023, the U.S. has had around 70,000 deaths from COVID compared to 250,000 last year. 
and over 460,000 in 2021. Putting the pieces together, we're experiencing a spike in the number of new cases of COVID, consistent with the time of the year, but no more than we expected. And that means that the restrictions around masking and isolation aren't likely to be implemented, except in the highest risk environments, like hospitals or nursing homes. Most experts are recommending, if you're healthy, just take the usual viral season precautions. But if you're at high risk, avoid crowds and protect yourself with a mask. And everyone should get vaccinated and boosted using the newest vaccine. A second story is specific to the treatment of sickle cell disease, a problem and a area of medical advance that we discussed in our last show. At that time, the use of the CRISPR genetic alteration technique had been approved in Great Britain, but not the US. Since then, the FDA gave its approval, despite the massive risks and even greater unknowns for this innovative technique. And it'll be available for another red blood cell disease. In addition to sickle cell disease, this one's thalassemia, the cost for treatment, estimated to be around $3 million per patient. What about the new virus we keep hearing about? Jeremy, the new virus, JN.1, accounts for the rising number of cases that we just discussed, and it has now become the number one variant infecting Americans. Based on what we know, it's derived from the BA.2.86, the previously most common strain. It's simply the next in a long line of increasing contagious, but no more lethal variants. And like its ancestor Omicron, it has numerous new mutations in the spike proteins, over 30 recognized so far. They allow the virus to overcome past immunity, whether from vaccination or prior infection. One thing that's different is that data so far indicate that unlike with previous variants, protection from this new variant is not transmitted through the original vaccine that most Americans received. And as we just said, this is a consequence of JN.1 having so many spike protein changes. This ability to elude previous antibodies is why public health officials are worried and why, once again, they're encouraging boosters for protection against severe disease. How about another medical story, Robbie? Jeremy, this one I found particularly fascinating and optimistic. Researchers from the University of Cambridge identified a hormone, GDF-15. It's produced by the placenta of pregnant women, and it triggers morning sickness. And they published their findings in the journal Nature. GDF-15 is released by the body overall in response to stress, such as following an infection. After release, it circulates in the blood and then it becomes attached to receptors in the part of the brain that leads to feeling sick and needing to vomit. The researchers theorized that from an evolutionary perspective, this hormone being released by the placenta could serve to protect the fetus in utero against toxins in food. The identification of this protein as the mechanism behind morning sickness means that a treatment which blocked this hormone could reduce or eliminate the nausea and vomiting many women experience during their pregnancy. Although this problem is most common in the first trimester, for some women it lasts the entire nine months. 
Already testing is being done in cancer patients who experience the same symptoms of nausea and vomiting following administration of chemotherapy. But before prescribing a drug to prevent these symptoms in pregnant women, researchers will need to prove that it's not just safe for the mother, but also that it won't harm the fetus. The study found that the level of the hormone GDF-15 correlated with the severity of the patient's symptoms. For pregnant women, that problem can range from mild nausea and vomiting in the first trimester, and by the way, that's reported by two-thirds of pregnant women, to the 2% of patients who require hospitalization for a life-threatening problem called hyperemesis gravidarum. Given the high frequency of the nausea and vomiting among newly pregnant women, many doctors inappropriately dismiss even the more severe cases as psychologically driven or a minor annoyance rather than, as this research shows, biological in nature. A further interest, researchers found that some women, these are women from Sri Lanka with a rare blood disorder, they have a specific genetic mutation that leads to high levels of GDF-15 being produced even prior to pregnancy. And unlike women who experience high levels of this hormone for the first time when they become pregnant and thereby develop severe symptoms, these women from Sri Lanka with lifelong exposure, they never experience nausea and vomiting at all when they become pregnant. This insight could lead to desensitization as a second way to minimize these very annoying symptoms in subsequent pregnancies, similar to what is done for patients with allergies. Supporting the possibility, scientists have found that when mice are given low doses of GDF-15 for several days, they don't have as severe a problematic response to a high dose of the hormone compared to mice that were never exposed to GDF-15. One thing is for sure based on this research, the nausea and vomiting many women experience in pregnancy, it's biological, not psychological. Hopefully, this new research will lead to a safe, effective approach to obviate this problem. Robbie, what's new in the pharmaceutical world? Jeremy, in a previous Medicine the Truth, we talked about the Inflation Reduction Act and how it will allow the government to negotiate with drug companies the price for 10 drugs starting in 2026. What will be less significant, but a step in the right direction, is that in that same legislation, the government offered the right to start this year, forcing drug companies to pay rebates when they raise the price of medication faster than the rate of inflation. The drugs covered in this legislation are just the ones administered by physicians in their offices or hospital clinics under Medicare Part B. We know that in 2023, the pharmaceutical industry raised prices mid-year on 123 drugs, the most since 2013, with the average price increase being 3.4%, which was above the 3.2% rate of overall inflation. So around half of these medications could result in rebates, particularly the 10 Pfizer drugs, which went up in price by 10% on average. It's estimated that this legislation will result in seniors receiving up to $2,786 for between 48 and 64 different medications once the final list is released. Among the top 25 Medicare medications, 
all but one has seen prices rise faster than inflation. And by the way, Jeremy, already in 2024, drug companies have raised the prices on 775 medications. Although the year-over-year -year increases are problematic, the biggest problem for Americans today is the astronomical initial, or so-called launch price for drugs. As hard as it is to fathom, in the U.S. this has soared from, get this, Jeremy, an average of $2,115 in 2008 to $180,000 in 2021. And in a second story, researchers from Yale found a close relationship between for-profit drug companies and not-for-profit patient advocacy organizations. Looking at the boards of patient advocacy, advocacy disease-specific organizations, among the 50 ones with the highest revenue, 74% of them had directors who either were still working for pharmaceutical companies or had recently been working inside one of them. Furthermore, 11 of the CEOs had similar backgrounds directly linked with the pharmaceutical companies associated with the diseases their advocacy group focused on. And four of these CEOs were simultaneously on the drug company boards. Obviously, the for-profit link of these non-profit patient advocacy organizations with for-profit drug companies raises conflicts of interest concerns. And when one of these organizations promotes a particular treatment and lobbies for extensive coverage, it becomes difficult to know whether they're doing so on behalf of patients or stockholders. Were these drug price increases you mentioned in 2023 justified? Jeremy, with rare exception, these price increases reflected what the manufacturers calculated the market would bear, not in any way added investments in research and development. According to the Independent and Not-for-Profit Institute for Clinical and Economic, or ICER, review, there was no justification for eight of the top 10 drugs, which had substantial net price increases last year. In total, the added cost of these eight drugs alone resulted in $1.3 billion in added American healthcare spending. At the top of the list was Umira, a drug for patients with rheumatoid arthritis manufactured by Avi. The company raised the wholesale price by 7.1%, resulting in an added cost to Americans of $386 million. And again, this is without any added R&D. This trend of what ICER calls unsupported price increases is in its fifth year. As you can imagine, Pharma disagrees with ICER's conclusions. What's new from the perspective of the healthcare system? Congress is in the process of passing legislation which would increase health price transparency requirements for insurers, drug companies, and hospitals. It would include providing information on pharmacy benefit manager agreements. These are arrangements between the manufacturer and the pharmacy benefit managers that incent these intermediaries to encourage higher price medications over less expensive drugs. 
the current sticking point and the source of intense lobbying by the Hospital Association is a very controversial provision that we've discussed in this show in the past called site-neutral payments. Currently, when patients get outpatient treatment at a hospital or at a clinic, even one in the community that's simply owned by the hospital, they're charged much more for the care compared to when the identical medical treatment is provided in an independent physician's office. The reason hospitals say is to make up for the insufficient reimbursement they receive for their inpatient care. Of course, that doesn't make any sense as an economic principle. It conflates two issues. If hospitals should be paid more for inpatient care, then those rates should go up. And if there's something unique about the care they provide, identify it and reward it. But simply because a hospital buys a doctor's practice, that shouldn't allow the hospital to receive a higher reimbursement. The perverse incentives in this problem are clear. To give listeners a sense of the magnitude of this issue, the bill, which was passed by the House, would only impact a small piece of the problem, and that is the, reg- the reimbursement rate for physician-administered drugs. But over a decade, this small piece of the solution, the Congressional Budget Office calculates alone would save Medicare $3.7 billion. The American healthcare system and its method of payment is broken and illogical. This is but one obvious example. Unfortunately, it seems as though lobbying and campaign contributions from the hospital industry have succeeded in torpedoing this legislation. Jeremy, as a small businessman, you experience the negative impact of these various healthcare pricing machinations. Do you see the government as the best solution, or is this a problem better handled through the marketplace? Rabbi, I think a competitive marketplace is ideal for the best offerings at the best rates. That being said, I think part of the issue is there just may not be enough competition in the marketplace. I think we need to see more creative solutions focused on small businesses at affordable rates with the best coverage. It's the biggest barrier for growth as well as retaining and bringing on top-tier talent. For small businesses that do not take on investors and want to self-fund their growth, taking on the cost of offering employee benefits can be scary and borderline impossible due to the costs and still needing to offer competitive wages. I do wish there was a great solution for small businesses out there, but I have not seen one. What else is happening in healthcare overall, Robbie? Jeremy, the biggest news continues to be the GLP-1 weight loss medications. The newest introduced to the marketplace is Zepbound, manufactured by Eli Lilly. Like the other GLP-1 medications on the market today, Zepbound must be injected, most likely taken for the rest of a person's life to avoid regaining nearly all of the weight loss. Similar to other medications in this class, it appears to work by slowing stomach emptying, by influencing the brain to control hunger, and by making people feel full. And it, on average, helped users to lose 20% of their weight. In a telling research study, researchers recruited subjects who had been on GLP-1 medications for a year. They then gave half of the users a placebo and the other half the actual medication. Over the course of the second year, the participants given the actual drug they went on to lose 5% more of their weight. While those with the ineffective placebo, they gained two thirds of their weight back 
despite being given lifestyle counseling and assistance with an exercise program. And the latter group was found after the year to have higher blood sugar, higher cholesterol, and higher blood pressure than the patients who continued to receive the actual medication. Robbie, a year ago in a controversial Forbes article, you predicted that people with COVID-19 would stop isolating themselves when affected before the end of the year. Did this happen? Jeremy, unfortunately, this happened exactly as predicted. On a recent survey of 2,000 Americans, one in four people said if they were sick, they would choose either not to test at all or not to share a positive test result if they did. Beyond that, 13% more said they would test and tell family and friends that they were positive, but they would still go out in public nonetheless. Half of all people said they would go to the grocery store or on other errands, even if testing positive. And to confirm the nonchalance of people in actual life situations, among those individuals who said that they had COVID in 2023, a third of them continued their usual activities. Based on this data, for at least half of Americans, COVID is perceived as just another annoying winter virus, despite the data on its higher mortality rate. Robbie, now that GLP-1 drugs are available for weight loss, what's happening to bariatric surgery? So far, the biggest impact, Jeremy, hasn't been to eliminate the procedure, but to combine the two procedures. Well, the bariatric surgery is highly effective in helping people lose weight. In a quarter to a third of patients, it's followed by major weight gain. And for that reason, adding a drug that diminishes appetite makes great sense. On the other hand, of course, from a financial perspective, combining an expensive operation with a very expensive lifelong drug, that's doubly costly. And the number of post-bariatric patients being prescribed the GLP-1 medication so far is relatively high. And that implies that the trend will continue to rise even further in the future. Specifically in 2023, one in six patients who had bariatric surgery who prescribed the GLP-1 drug, and that was three times higher than in 2021. Robbie, we've talked about the Affordable Care Act several times. What's new now? Jeremy, we're seeing a major shift when it comes to healthcare coverage, and now we're talking about individuals, not people insured through their workplace. What happened during the pandemic was that millions of Americans began to receive coverage through Medicaid under the emergency authorization legislation that Congress passed and the president signed. When the emergency declaration ended, the states which oversee the, the Medicaid program, they began to remove people from the program that they thought shouldn't be there. And so far, nearly 10 million individuals have lost coverage. What we're seeing is that many of those who lost Medicaid have now moved to the healthcare exchanges the ones that were created through the Affordable Care Act. In 2024, over 21 million people signed up for these exchanges. That was approximately double 2023. Listeners may remember that Medicaid was initially created to provide healthcare coverage to individuals and families with incomes below the poverty level. The ACA increased eligibility to around a third higher in terms of the income for the family, but a significant amount of paperwork is required to confirm that eligibility and to sign up. 
After the end of the emergency pandemic coverage, many people lost their coverage due to snags in documentation. Remember, most of these individuals we're talking about who lost the coverage, they work, but their jobs don't provide healthcare insurance. As such, most can afford to pay a small difference in cost between Medicare, which is completely free, and the exchanges which involve a monthly payment and out-of-pocket expense, but also include subsidies for Americans. In this, the next higher financial tier, but still one that is relatively low. And that is what seems to be happening and what's driving the increase in signups in 2024. Supporting the transition, the Biden administration has provided more navigators this year to assist individuals in completing the paperwork which is needed to obtain the coverage under Medicaid, specific to those individuals who meet all of the requirements for inclusion in this program. Robbie, this loss of coverage for Medicaid sounds problematic. Can you provide a few more details? The usual procedure, Jeremy, for Medicaid is that on an annual basis, people go through an eligibility check in order to renew their coverage. When the pandemic struck and a public health emergency declaration was issued, these annual financial verifications were discontinued. And that was in March of 2020. As a result, for the past three years, no one has been dropped from the Medicaid program. And during that time, total enrollment in Medicaid reached 97 million Americans. In spring of 2023, President Biden ended the public health emergency declaration and the process for Medicaid returned to the one that had been in place prior to the pandemic. Since then, around 13 million people have been disenrolled. In some cases, this was appropriate based on the regulatory requirements. But for many individuals who qualified, it was just paperwork difficulties and administrative errors that left them uninsured. In total, when you net out those who are unenrolled with new signups and include individuals who were able to be re-enrolled after being disenrolled because the paperwork could be completed, the total decline in Medicaid is probably around 8 million according to the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. And nearly half of these 8 million individuals are children. And of course, even for people who straighten out the paperwork issues, there was a lapse in coverage. And that means that their ongoing chronic problems got ignored, which in many cases leads to serious consequences. Texas is the state with the highest disenrollment numbers with a total of 1.7 million people having lost their coverage, it's estimated that close to a million of those individuals actually qualified, but as we said, had snags in paperwork or missed the deadline. Robbie, lots of listeners are interested in the growing role of private equity in medicine. Is there any new information? Private equity has become a progressively bigger player in healthcare. A recent study published in JAMA finds that this isn't good for patients, at least when it comes to hospitals. The researchers found that serious medical complications rose after private equity investment companies purchased hospitals. They looked three years after hospital acquisition, they discovered the negative outcomes. We're talking bed sores, post-operative infections. These increased by 25% among the Medicare patients studied when compared to what happened in the surrounding 
hospitals that were not acquired by private equity. Similarly, central line infections that can result in infections of heart valves, they rose 38% and falls by patients, which is a major source of disability and death, they went up 27%. The explanation offered by the researchers for the poorer clinical outcomes was the lower level of staffing imposed by private equity companies compared to the usual standards of medical care. Although there was no major difference in deaths, either during the hospitalization or subsequent 30 days, the research felt that this was a consequence of private equity-owned hospitals admitting healthier individuals compared to the surrounding facilities in the community, as such mortality should have been significantly better in these hospitals, but it wasn't. Private equity has become an ever larger player in healthcare. They're acquiring nursing homes, physician practices, home health companies. Other studies have shown that soon after acquisition, the prices for the services charged rise 10 to 30% simply as a result of the purchase for the private equity company. Congress is currently looking into the role of private equity in healthcare, particularly and specific to hospital purchases. On a parallel note, one of the nation's largest venture capital companies, this is General Catalyst, it just purchased Summa Health, one of the largest integrated healthcare delivery systems in Ohio, with three hospitals, 15 community medical centers, a multi-specialty medical group, and a health insurance arm. The opportunity to transfer medical care delivery will be great. Rather than planning to reduce costs, General Catalyst has said that it won't cut staff and they promise to keep all of the people and moreover invest in improving clinical outcomes. This would be a major deviation from how private equity usually works with cost cutting being the first step, including the elimination of positions and people for the prior roles. Jeremy, in previous ep episodes of Medicine the Truth, we focused on the retail giants leading the big changes that medicine requires, using technology and redesigning operations for the benefit of patients. Now, private equity or venture capital, both are flexing their muscles and they may choose to get in the ring and compete with retail giants on a national basis. Jeremy, as the businessman, I'm sure you have thoughts on the role of private equity. Can you share them with listeners? Robbie, I have mixed feelings on this. On one hand, an infusion of capital can be great for any business and its growth. That being said, I do think it's scary how some of these big private equity firms seem to be buying up more and more of our economy from real estate, medicine, news outlets, etc. I just don't think it's healthy long term for a few major private equity firms to own and control almost monopolistically more and more of our economy. This is something that could have a major negative impact on the average consumer across the U.S. Robbie, it's been a while since we presented a good news segment. What can you offer for 2024? Jeremy, the good news is that technology companies are increasingly looking for ways to improve clinical outcomes and make medical care safer using modern technology. The latest involves video. 
let's say you're not a clinician, but you find yourself alone with someone having a medical emergency. What do you do? Obviously, the first thing is call 911. Then there's the 10 minutes before the paramedics arrive. What next? Before, the only answer might have been, just wait. What else could you do? But now, it's check YouTube. The company is now launching a step-by-step -step tutorial on what to do before the first responders can take over. The tutorial includes a range of ways that people can provide life-saving care, including performing CPR, administering Narcan for a drug overdose, or diagnosing and stabilizing someone with a heart attack. And the recommendations have been vetted by experts from the Massachusetts General Hospital, the inpatient facility, closely associated with Harvard. Hopefully, YouTube videos will help make a difference, keeping people alive until definitive care comes to the door. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, scientists are fascinated by what at first glance seems to be a contradictory evolutionary outcome. As an example, if as we discussed earlier, sickle cell disease is so problematic. Why is it so common in black individuals? You'd think that over tens of thousands of years of evolution, people with this problem would have been less likely to have offsprings and the gene responsible for sickle cell disease would have disappeared, but it didn't. To understand why you need to think back to high school biology and the section on genetics. You may remember that every one of our cells has in the nucleus 23 pairs of chromosomes, each packed with thousands of genes. We inherit one of each pair from our mother and one from our father. Patients with sickle cell disease, they have two abnormal genes and that produces the life-threatening red blood cell problem. Both of the genes they inherit, both the one from the mother and the father, has the abnormality. And for them, the genetic problems are terrible. But far more people have one abnormal gene. It may have come from the mother or the father, but they received the normal one from the other parents. And these individuals have very minimal difficulties. Researchers believe that this genetic situation, rather than being negative for the people who have this milder form, created a positive competitive advantage for people against malaria. And this is a disease that kills hundreds of thousands of individuals, even today in Africa. As such, what is life Threatening when both genes are mutated is life-saving when only one is abnormal. Now researchers publishing the findings in the journal Nature have found evidence that the same phenomenon may be happening relative to, to multiple sclerosis. These researchers found evidence that people living in Northern Europe have twice the number of cases of multiple sclerosis for 100,000 individuals as individuals in Southern Europe. When patients have multiple sclerosis, their immune cells attack the cells in the brain and spinal cord, producing difficulty in walking and talking. Having identified this 
twofold prevalence of multiple sclerosis and the responsible gene. They next were able to show that this gene, the one that increases the risk of developing multiple sclerosis, entered Northern Europe around 5,000 years ago when cattle herders from Russia migrated west. The researchers hypothesized that this genetic abnormality, which today is so problematic, helped protect the herders from sheep and cattle disease thousands of years ago. What's clear from this study and the one on sickle cell disease is that what offers competitive survival benefits in one milieu and one time period can have negative consequences in another. I point this out because human evolution and thinking doesn't evolve in the same natural selection way as our biological characteristics. We tend to cling to the past rather than pushing to the future. The American healthcare system is a great example. And this research and biologic change stimulated my thinking on this topic. The current US healthcare system evolved in the 20th century at a time when the world and the diseases that people had were different. At that time, most people went to the doctor when they had an acute problem, pneumonia, appendicitis, trauma, or a heart attack. The physician, who was a generalist, and despite having limited amount of knowledge, was able to take care of the problem given the paucity of medications and other treatments available at the time, did their best and offered the care that was appropriate, but as a result of not having very many tools, the cost of medical treatment was low, accounting for at most about 6% of our nation's gross domestic product. The individual doctor's office, the community hospital located close to people's homes, and the fee-for-service method of payment all made total sense in that 20th century context. But leaping forward to today, the 21st century, the milieu and the context, they've changed in unimaginable ways. Chronic disease, not acute disease, chronic disease now afflicts 60% of the population. And the majority of problems that doctors see relates to these illnesses and their complications. Healthcare currently consumes 18% of the GDP, not 6%. And many treatments, as for patients with sickle cell disease, cost $3 million per year, not pennies or dollars as it had in the past. And yet, we continue to see the individual physician's office and the local community hospital as the gold standard. And we continue to use a payment methodology that rewards volume, not value. None of this is optimal in the current milieu. I'm confident that if the healthcare system were biological, it would have evolved in ways that promoted collaboration and cooperation, in ways that connected all the parts with modern technology and in ways which rewarded health, not just the reversal of disease. Unfortunately, this type of change is dependent on something more than mutations in our DNA. It is why leadership is so essential and unfortunately a relatively absent ability in the current healthcare world.
As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.